Several months ago, we heard that you had a stroke, I believe, or something. You had a, you had a major. Okay, okay, but yeah, yeah, and, and I, I want you to know that uh, we all prayed for you, and it's good to see you up and that the God uh, allowed you to continue to serve. Thank you. Yeah, let's, uh, let's open with prayer. Father God. We are thankful for the ministry of Makers and Means. We pray that you would uh, just be with Roger and Susan as they carry this on and, and superintend over this. We pray that you would continue to work in our hearts today. And Lord, I just pray that you would help me to explain with some clarity uh, a, an abstract yet very concrete thing that each of us needs to consider as we try to deal with the issue of maintaining true, genuine conviction and faithfulness. Uh, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, this is the fourth in a series of monthly messages entitled Head to Heart. Uh, and we started in January, and I said at that time, we're going to try to deal with some basics, and we get around to some of those today, uh, but the, the situation that we addressed then was a culture adrift, uh, including church people, often the young, who may not discount all truth, they may even believe that Jesus saves, but many are not sure why they believe those things. And for many, that truth was their pragmatic truth that works for them, not a universal objective truth. Now, it is a good thing to own your convictions, uh, uh, but to say that I have my truth and you have yours is to say that God does not establish truth for all. Uh, and with that view... A person or the culture determines truth. And that's exactly what a guy, an apologist in my generation, named Josh McDowell, found in multiple studies about church teens around the, the new millennium, Y2K. And those teens are now parents of teens today. Uh, uh, we next look at the trend or the tendency of faith to dissipate as it's passed through generations and how we must be aware of this tendency if we wish to change directions. Another teacher of my generation, a guy named Bruce Wilkinson, told us that children of first chair parents, as he referred to them, those who are sold out to Christ may very well believe but be less committed, more compromising in their views. And so they sit in the second chair of compromising faith, which will often cause the next generation, their children, to view their faith as hypocrisy. And so that generation in the third chair will oftentimes be resistant or reject the gospel. That's a tendency. It's not a law. And we saw that in multiple situations in the Old Testament and teaching in the New. Finally, last month we discussed the meaning and the importance of rock-solid convictions as a starting place. With constant worldly input into the minds and hearts of the young through technology, truth and faith can become very liquid 
That is to say, it can change from day to day if there's no solid concept of absolute truth. We also discussed last month that presenting evidence for truth, belief, for faith, is not to discount faith, and certainly is not the opposite of faith. We covered numerous examples in Scripture where evidence was needed and provided. Knowing what you believe is essential, but also one needs to know why one believes to withstand challenges from the skeptics. And so we should not expect our teens to hold on to their faith when they are asked why they believe in God, when the only answer they can muster is, that's what my pastor, my parents, my Sunday school teacher told me. God's Word tells us that we are all, including the young, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Now, Christy and I, I think since about the time we started attending Lion and Lamb, have been facilitating a course called Getting to the Gospel for High School Students. And we did that because late in parenting, we were hearing about all these studies that show that when kids leave the home they, from Christian homes, they tend to fall away, something like 75, 80% of them tend to fall away. And so I'm thinking to myself, why would Christy and I put decades into inculcating these beliefs to have some young guy with a goatee tear it all apart with a question that they can't answer? So we felt like, you know, we need to do something as late as we are to solidify faith in the young. So we started that course. Uh, and if you, I, I hope, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I hope you'll, you'll see on your handout, and I hope you'll look at this handout, maybe unlike some previous ones, that there's some resources on there. And at the end, I put down some resources. You know, maybe you want to have your kids take our course, or maybe you want to get into some of those resources. This is, these are just a few that have worked for us. And you can do them on your own, or you can have somebody else teach these to your children, but by all means, don't assume that an hour on Sunday morning is going to compete with 24-7 access to the world. It's not. Don't presume that your kids are getting it. Throughout this series, we've emphasized two major goals that go hand in hand, God's Word and His Spirit, objective truth communicated through genuine relationship. Hearing the truth in the home and the church is essential, but it may not be sufficient. The older must not only be faithful, but effective in passing on faith to the younger. And you can share the gospel with strangers, certainly, and you should when you're given the opportunity. But with children and family and most others, it usually requires connection and genuine relationship if they're going to listen to you. Now, before I go on, if I may take a personal aside here, uh, the fact that I'm up here teaching on these things does not mean I have mastered this. Um, in fact, the reason that I got into this series is because I have failed. Yes, we taught all those doctrinal things. We taught all those truths. But I did not emphasize the relationship to the point that I should have. And I want you not to repeat 
my mistakes. Because I'm seeing this play out in my own family. So today, what we want to do is turn to the evidences in God's Word and hopefully learn together how to spread relational truth to our loved ones and others. When you start to talk about philosophies, eyes start to glaze over, don't they? You know, we tend to tune out. Uh, We mentioned... uh, that today's emerging philosophy is a thing called postmodernism, the belief that there is no objective truth, rather truth is determined by the culture or by the individual. Now, if you talk to a Christian young person today, and by young I mean under 30, sorry you 30-somethings, that's our definition for today. If you ask them what's important to them, in the conversation you are likely to hear the word community, okay? And on the one hand, in a culture influenced by postmodernism, that kind of makes sense because in the postmodern worldview, all truth originates from the culture, the community in which a person participates. Now, please do not hear me say that if a young Christian uses the word community, that they're a postmodernist. No, that's simply what they've heard from their peers and the young pastors they're under, uh, and they have a reason for using the word. It makes sense. It's their generational vernacular. On the other hand, when you think about it, the word community is not a bad thing. For the young Christian, it may imply something even beyond Christian fellowship, which is, you know, uh, which we sometimes, you know, it's coffee and donuts in our holy huddle is how they view it. It may imply that the body of Christ is to reach out, minister, meet needs, live life with, show love, and point to God and be a witness to the surrounding community. So I might even go so far as to say that this may be an area where we older Christians can learn from younger Christians, something that maybe wasn't emphasized as much when we were growing up. Uh, Fellowship, outreach, people coming to Christ, isn't that what we want? Uh, Yeah, this is a word that we older believers are not used to, but the concept is biblical. In fact, the early church not only worshipped together corporately, but they spent time together in homes, eating, working, serving one another, and others on the outside. And they were, quote, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's Acts 2. Now, don't you think we could call that community? The point I'm trying to make here is that the older generation has this concept as common ground with young folks within the church. Younger believers, frankly, probably do have a greater sense of relation and community than we do. Those are good qualities, ones we should all adopt.
And as we take a closer look today and, and in the in future, I think what we're going to find is that absolute truth is intensely and unavoidably relational. Now, we're going to get into this much deeper next month, Lord willing, but bear with me now as I attempt to go from some abstract to concrete concepts, and it all starts with the source of truth. When Pilate asked that famous question, quid es veritas, what is truth? He did not realize that he was looking at it. Jesus was the Word who had become flesh and dwelt among us, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before Pilate's famous question, Jesus said, For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And as creator and origin of all things, Jesus is the standard of truth which holds all things together. Paul tells us this in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So to know if anything is true, right or wrong, good or evil, we measure it against the person who is truth. God does not measure up to truth. He defines it by his person and his nature. Therefore, moral and spiritual truth is not a what nearly as much as it is a who. This is a relational context of truth that allows us to connect with young people living in a postmodern culture. You know, James was not talking in abstract terms when he wrote that every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Likewise, in John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And just a few verses later, he says, Jesus said to the Jews, Excuse me. So, if the Son sets you free, get that? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He wasn't confused. He wasn't contradicting himself. He was saying that, he is truth. And he flat out declares this in John 14 where he declares, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the younger generation, which rightly emphasizes relationship and community, needs to understand what Josh McDowell said, that Quote, truth is intrinsically, inescapably relational because it resides in and springs from a person who loves them and desires a relationship with them, person to person, friend 
to friend. Now, we've referred to the influence of postmodernism, which may not cause people to make crazy statements about alternate reality in the past, but caused many to acquiesce, if not rationalize, that all moral and spiritual truth is subjective and equal. They, they would say, you know, I have my truth, you have yours, I'm okay, you're okay. You remember that phrase? Now, we cannot force people to believe in absolute truth, but we can nurture with faithful training of the young through a heart of relationship in order to win them over. And we start with the most important relationship, to accept what we have, that we have security in a rock-solid reality of absolute truth. What we believe must be understood in the context of both why and who we believe. Therefore, the key to effective reaching the young, Christian or not, is how we relate to a real person, the person of truth, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, what does this practically mean? God's command, his will and his ways taught in his word are vital to understanding the truth, but they must must be taught less as rules and instructions to obey and more as ways to relate to that person. That is, if it's our goal to be not only faithful, but effective. Many in the world in the church view Jesus as an example of a good person, right? One response to that thought is through logic. C.S. Lewis made it clear that the one thing you cannot say about Jesus is that he was merely a good person. He claimed to be God incarnate, therefore either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he is Lord. But for many young people in the church today who have heard and given mental assent that Jesus is God, that's not the issue. Rather, it is translating that recognition into a changed life, which is so difficult in a postmodern culture. They can agree that Jesus is the best example. They might even agree that he is God. But think about this. It is no longer, I'm okay, you're okay. Today's youth are navigating interacting in a culture that screams, if your truth is different than ours, you are a hater. And don't you dare tell me what mine should be. Because I'll cancel you. And that's a bit intimidating, isn't it? You and I, if you're over 30, you did not experience this kind of a culture. Add to that the tendency of young people to reject mere rule-keeping, when that's all they're taught is us Christians. That's just just what we do. Uh, Especially coming from second-chair compromising parents. Instead, we need to help them see that Jesus is far better, far more than that. Now, When you read the Gospels, yes, obviously, Jesus taught us how to live. But as as important as that is, his primary emphasis was not on his teaching, but on his deity. In order to be an effective witness, mature believers need to shift that focus to how Jesus as God 
embodies truth. So I've listed on your handout some, some conclusions there. First, that truth cannot be subjectively made up or determined. Rather, truth originates in the objective and absolute person of Christ. Uh, John 1 tells us the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Secondly, truth from Christ cannot be relative, good for one, but not for another. Each culture finding its own truth when he came down, Jesus was the one, quote, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And finally, not all truth claims are equal. And this gets us back to Lewis's contention. Jesus said, Jesus said flatly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember the basic law of non-contradiction that we talked about before. Logic tells us that Jesus cannot be the only way and at the same time be co-equal with any other way. He cannot be one among many. Instead, Jesus is the incarnation of God who said in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now, so I, I so much appreciate uh, the emphasis on community that the young have, and that community is what the early church exemplified. True community, though, starts with Christ, who defines community. Relationship with the person of truth draws each believer into the community that focuses on our identity with him. And Paul described this in 1 Corinthians 12 as one in which we all have a role, one in which the members serve one another, rejoice, but also suffer and lament with one another, united by the Holy Spirit. He says, starting in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, for all were made to drink of one spirit. If we and the younger generations are convinced that community is in Christ, we must also be assured that it is true. Our existence and our destiny must go beyond community in this life. So for that assurance, we must all be sure of the evidences that demonstrate that he is the eternal God. If Christ is not who he claimed to be, if he did not rise from the dead, then none of his teachings about salvation or eternity are true. As Paul put it, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are completely deceived. So before we can pass on conviction of the truth of God's word, we must be secure ourselves. Therefore, let's start to look at these evidences that will give the assurance to the young that he is true. Because Overall, what I'm trying to get across here is we cannot pass on. You cannot give what you do not yourself have. Okay? So, 
what's this all about his deity? In our, uh, in our course that we mentioned earlier, Christy and I, uh, from time to time, will teach how to maneuver in discussions about biblical worldview or principle. Uh, and it, the, course is actually, the part of the course is actually called Tactics of Evangelism. One of those tactics is to pit the unbeliever against Jesus rather than yourself. Uh, for example, you know, if, a, if an unbeliever calls you a hater or narrow-minded for thinking that people cannot choose their own sexual identity, you can say, I didn't come up with that. Jesus of Nazareth was the one who said, have you not read that, who, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, this tactic is often effective because in the mind of many unbelievers, that Jesus guy said some pretty good stuff. He has what we call credibility among even unbelievers. Many people like what he taught about caring about others and loving one another. And one of the reasons for this is that Jesus is presented to the world, especially on university campuses, as a good teacher. They make his teaching central and discount, if not deny, his deity. I came to an understanding of the gospel my first semester in all places at the University of Kansas in a frat house where Steve and I lived. And so during the second semester, I decided I should take a course. So I enrolled in the Kansas University School of Religion in a course called The Life and Teaching of Jesus. Now, they did tell us we had to read the Gospels, which we did, which was good. Uh, but the professor stressed that the principles Jesus taught were the important things, not any notion about his deity. And I recall specifically where he said, you know, there's really no reason to believe in the virgin birth or the miracles or anything like that, because what's important is what Jesus taught us. Now, 40-some years later, uh, the problem is that that understanding of Jesus is in the church today. Many mainline churches focus on his teaching and only mention his deity in their hymns and in their rituals, which their godly founders gave them. And they don't pay much attention to it. Many will argue that Jesus never claimed to be God. Is that true? Not only did he claim it, he focused on his deity much more than his teachings. When teaching his disciples, Jesus asked, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus pointed to his deity so emphatically the religious leaders tried to discredit, then kill him. Uh, in John 5, it gives us the account the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then on trial before the Sanhedrin, the, the high priest asked directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Therefore, they condemned this self-proclaimed Messiah, the one for whom they had been waiting, to death. So, 
how can we know that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God? We said earlier that most people see Jesus as having credibility because of the wisdom and the kindness of what they have heard that he said. However, when Jesus told his disciples to believe, he did not say, believe in my teachings. He said, believe in me. In fact, the truth, reality, and wisdom of his words really depend upon his identity as the Messiah, as God in the flesh. If he is not who he says he is, he must be either crazy or worse, a lying, deceitful devil. For the seeker, the young, or the new, or any believer who's challenged by a skeptic, or even an older believer who starts to doubt, there is evidence upon which to stand. So let's set up the first body of evidence here with a hypo. Okay, suppose at a time before smartphones, you get a call from an insurance salesman, and he convinces you to meet him at a large, crowded restaurant. You say, okay. Uh, but you ask him, how will I recognize you? And he says, oh, okay, no problem. I'm going to drive up in a Ford Pinto. I said this was before cell phones, okay? <laughs> and you say, well, lots of people are driving Pintos these days. Can you give me something more? He says, well, I'm going to wear dark trousers and a white shirt. He says, well, that's great, but yeah, people these days are doing that a lot. Uh, can you give me more? Well, yeah, I've got brown hair. Okay, that's a little more specific, but anything more than that? He goes, well, yeah. I've got inch-high uh, letters of, of a tattoo of the word Mabel on my forehead. <laughs> and your curiosity gets you, who's Mabel? It's my mother. Now, if, if you decide to go ahead with that meeting, I'm pretty sure you'll identify him, right? Okay. Um, in the same way, the ability to identify both the historical man and God revealed in human form is pretty crucial to finding the truth. So how could we know a baby born in humble circumstances could be the Savior? The first body of evidence that we want to examine are the clues, the hints, the descriptions of him found in the prophecies that he fulfilled. Now, before I go over these, and really all this evidence, I need to warn you, okay? You might be tempted to just kind of say, ah, fall asleep, because you've heard all this before. I know if you've been in church for any period of time. However, our goal here is not simply to hear the same evidences again that you've heard in bits and pieces before, but for you all to incorporate this, to ingrain this, so that you can be effective in passing this on okay, to the next generation or two or three. You know, it's not just that you hear these evidences once again, but that we know and understand them to the point that we can explain them, again, within a relational context. Think about this. If your teenager or your teen grandchild came to you and, and asked you why you believe that Jesus in the Bible is God, what would you say? What evidence would you have? Would you be able to say anything more, in, more than, well, that's what they tell us at church? Is that a credible response? Is that going to be convincing? 
Again, you need more than that to be credible with people these, this day. So let's start with the prophecies. Now, uh, I'll say right up front, I have not listed them because they're too numerous. It would take up too much space. But I've given you resources there that if you go on the website uh, and, you, and you click on the document, you can actually click the link and it'll take you to those uh, that, are, that are links. Um, but if we were to somehow figure out how we could recognize the Savior of the world, what clues might have been given to us from before? Okay? These are all uh, points, prophecies, that were made in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New, and those links will show you both. First, he was born an Israelite, descended from Abraham. And you're thinking, well, aren't Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars? Can you get a little bit more specific? Okay, we'll cut it in half. He's a descendant of Isaac and not Ishmael. And half again, he's from Jacob's line, not Esau. But you say, Jacob had 12 sons. We'll cut it down from there. He's, a, he's from the tribe of Judah. Uh, and his family line is of Jesse and David. And he's born in an obscure town named Bethlehem. And you're thinking, okay, that's more specific. Now, which person born in Bethlehem is the Messiah? And you can say that it was foretold a messenger will announce his coming. His ministry will start in Galilee. He'll use parables in his teachings. He'll perform miracles. He'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He will clean out the temple courts forcefully. And then 29 specific prophecies spoken over 500 years before will be fulfilled in him in one day. Finally, he will rise from the grave on the third day after his death. All those things were prophesied, and all those things are recorded as occurring. Now, if you look at this from the statistician's point of view, uh, the chances of only eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros after it before you get to a decimal point. That's just the beginning, okay? Long before those prophets foretold the events surrounding the arrival of the Messiah, God laid out a plan of how he would deal with the problem of sin. In other words, how would he restore the relationship with mankind that turned their collective backs on him in the garden? And in Genesis 3, Satan's temptations led to sin in mankind and separated us from him. So God pro proclaimed to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now listen to this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the New King James Version. Please note, he did not say the seed of the man. No, it's interesting. Seven centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive, bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Biological lesson here. Uh, the process of conception requires a female ovum or egg to be fertilized by a male sperm or seed to form a new cell. And when that cell implants in the lining of the uterus, it has a complete set of chromosomes, half from each parent, to form a new distinct person in that single cell, which will develop into more than six trillion cells. 
So God, knowing that mankind was tainted with sin, sent himself to earth through a once-in-history process where the natural biological process was not followed. Luke, the physician and historian whose detailed descriptions have been verified by archaeology over and over again, recalls how Mary was informed by the angel Gabriel that she would bear the Son of God. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Matthew recorded the event like this. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together in sexual union, she, found, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive, bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the evidence of the virgin birth is significant. Joseph's reaction to the pregnancy, pretty understandable. He decided to call the whole thing off because of Mary's apparent infidelity while betrothed to him until the angel convinced him to go ahead and join with her. In that culture, where all family ties were through the Father, it's significant that Jesus, when he started his public ministry, he returned to his hometown. People marveled at his wisdom but said, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, this shows it was common knowledge that Joseph was not his father. In John 8, uh, Jesus was urging the Jews to become his disciples and be set free. Some believed, but others pushed back, and they said, we were not born of sexual immorality. So the virgin birth would have brought accusations of illegitimacy in that society, not known today. This was even recognized in extra-biblical sources. Third-century theologian Origen wrote that the Jewish rabbis later made up a story that the father of Jesus was actually a Roman soldier named Panthera. And Origen wrote that by doing so, they, quote, unintentionally admitted that Jesus was not born of an ordinary marriage. So I want to make three points here about that stand out. Uh, first, the evidence of the virgin birth points us to the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he was. Secondly, he demonstrated that he identifies with us by humbling himself and willingly enduring the ridicule, the name-calling, the taunts of others, not only as an adult, but as a child. And finally, the words and works of Jesus must have caused a lot of consternation to the point that the Jews wanted to discredit him with false accusations. And that leads us to the next body of evidence for his deity, which are his miracles. Okay, in 1988, Kansas University basketball team had some pretty good players, as they usually do, and they had one great player named Danny Manning, okay? Now, that team was a bit like this year's team. It was, at one point in the season, 12-8, and eight, okay, which is not a good record for a KU team. Uh, but they went on to win the national championship. They figured it out. And they were known as Danny and the Miracles, 
think that's a Motown thing. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Eight years before that, the U.S. Olympic hockey team was made up of college students and semi-pro players because at that time, the U.S. Olympic Committee did not allow professionals to play on their Olympic teams. But the other countries didn't have any problem with including their professionals. And so the U.S. team actually made it to the Final Four, and in the first game, they were pitted against the Soviets, who were picked to win the gold. And they were entirely made up of professional Soviet players. At the end of the second period, the Soviets were ahead 3-2. to two. But in the third period, these rinky-tink hockey players from America scored two goals and hung on to win. That victory was considered the greatest upset in, in U.S. sports history. And in fact, it was called the Miracle on Ice. And in 2004, they made a movie of this unlikely run called Simply Miracle. These were not miracles. <laughs> okay? A biblical miracle is not an unlikely event or huge coincidence. Now, Christians often label good things that happen as miracles, okay? When a better word would actually be providence. In other words, God did something good for me unexpectedly. I had, didn't see that coming. And I am so blessed, and he deserves the credit. And when we use the term miracle for things explainable by natural means, we cheapen the term and it loses its meaning. So without getting into the issue of God's sovereignty, an unbeliever is, can easily, could have easily said at that time, you know, the U.S. team just simply had a great game and the, and the Soviets simply overlooked them. You know, there's their natural explanation for that. A biblical miracle is one that defies the laws of nature for which there is only a supernatural explanation. And by that definition, you can think of many. Parting of the Red Sea, raising the dead, the virgin birth would all qualify as miracles. Now, now Jesus used his works, including his miracles, to give evidence of his deity. In John 10, it says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, the miracles, the evidence, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. After he convinced Thomas of his resurrection, John records that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these miracles are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. During the mess his message at Pentecost, Peter called out the doubters. He said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Uh, there's a list on your handout of some of the miracles, okay? So I'm not going to go through those. Uh, you, can, you can read those on your own. And I, you, these are probably stories you've heard. But again, it's important that you remember that you are aware that these are evidences that Jesus is God. 
when the question comes. It's not simply because that's what I was told. When you consider all these mighty works, the miracles that he did, it should cause us, just like Thomas, to say, my Lord, my God. We discussed last month that Jesus knew these evidences would be necessary for many, so he gave us those evidences. And that's why we have a precise and powerful record of those prophecies, the virgin birth, and his miracles, so that all they know he is the Son of God. Yet we know that whether it's immaturity, ignorance, willful blindness, deception, or whatever we might call it today, is rampant. The culture is not only calling good evil, but it's calling evil good, even to the point of redefining our reality. So that's why we're studying this. We all need to strive to be first chair Christians and pass on first chair convictions, genuine belief, to at least our own. The culture is calling, it's beckoning them. It says, come on over. You don't have to listen to your old-fashioned parents or your church. You can believe, do, and even be whatever you want because you are your own God. We must learn, all of us, to, to help others, the young especially, but even, even people of our own ages, see God's truth. We've got to be able to make the connection with the relational meaning of that truth with a just and loving Father. To wrap up, after healing the man blind from birth, the Pharisees asked him, Who healed you? And he said, How do I know? I was blind. All I know is, now I can see. So whoever it was, he must be a man from God. And so the religious leaders, they didn't like that answer. So they cast him out. If you would stand up, uh, and uh, I'm, I failed to get a, a, a visual for you here, so I'm just going to read it while the worship team comes up about what happened next. Jesus heard that they had cast that man out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Lord God, may the blinders be taken off of our young or even older people who do not understand that Jesus is truth and that he loves us. He loves us more than anyone else, so much so that he went to the cross to pay for our sins himself. Lord God, help us to understand and apply this in our lives. Help us to understand how to explain it
to, to our loved ones and to anyone who will listen. Help us to be willing and able to give the evidences so that others may know. Lord, we give you the praise, and we ask that you would do this in each of us. We ask these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus. Amen.